I thank you so much, Jessica. That, by the way, brothers and sisters, is one of the most difficult readings one can offer from the Bible. And now something much easier. Coming from the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, which is found in the ninth chapter. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. Grace to you all in peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Sin. Not a pleasant word, is it? Doesn't ring well in our ears. People don't like the sound of it. It sounds, when I pronounce it like that, that sin, it sounds like the hiss of a snake. The very word reminds us of the origins of human sin as it rose up back at the time of what we now call the fall, the the entrance of sin into the lives of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Some people, when I've used that word, have come up to me, and it's happened several times in my pastoral career, and they've complained to me. They said, I shouldn't use a word, specifically that word, sin, during a worship service. It's not pleasant and not polite. Our beloved pastor emeritus, Bruce Wilder, told me once that he had a person come up to him who was quite upset and very agitated for exactly the same reason. I'm sure, because it's his nature, that Pastor Bruce was very polite to his interrogator. I hope I was as polite as he when I had my instances. But I ask you, I ask all, why is it? that we put this thing called confession at the beginning of our worship week after week after week. And how many times do you hear that S word in that confession? That sin word. Many of us do have problems wanting to hear that. It's like looking at our own sin in the mirror and, and it frightens us. It may even disgust us. But the Apostle Paul had absolutely no problem with the subject of sin. Over these past six weeks, as we've been contemplating Paul's letter to the Romans, bit by bit, we've heard everything that Paul had to say, every argument he made, every point he raised, apart from his initial hello to the church in Rome, every bit of it 
was based on the understanding that fin, sin excuse me, corrupts us and every gathering that we attend. The good news for Paul, of course, is that he could say these kinds of things to the church in Rome because he'd never been there before, he hadn't met those people, and they weren't likely to come and complain to him in the handshake line. But today, as you've already heard, we consider this difficult-to-read seventh chapter of Romans. And Paul, having talked about sin for all of those six chapters that weren't before, is now building to what I call a sin crescendo in this seventh chapter. Having once been one of the most learned Pharisees of his time, Paul has much to say to the church of Christ about sin coming through the law. The law. The word of God revealed in the first five books of the Old Testament. Or for our Jewish brothers and, and sisters, it's those five books are called the Torah. Paul has a lot to say about the close relationship of, of law and sin. They are so closely described in the text that Jessica read for us. And, and the way it's crafted, you might think it logical that the Old Testament law, as it was given, and caused sin somehow. That sin came out of the law. That's how closely the apostle lists these two and compares them in that very lengthy seventh chapter. But listen carefully. Paul would have nothing of logic like that. He tells us that sin is evil and the law is not evil. But he does identify the problem with the law. The problem with the law is that it's just plain weak. It's like we are, you and I, all of us, we're weak. Neither we nor the law, because of our weakness, can resist the power of sin. Consider this. A little bit different for me. Hand puppet, right? That's a hand puppet. The hand puppet is controlled in all of its motions by the hand that is within it. The law, similarly, is controlled by the sin that takes it over and uses the law for its own purposes. If this puppet, and I don't know how, so just pretend to this part. If this puppet was to make an obscene gesture right now, okay, if it were to do that, would you condemn the puppet? Would you? Of course not. It is, of course, the controlling hand that would have produced those awful gestures. Similarly, Paul understands that if the law results in evil acts, we are not to condemn the law, but rather the controlling power that caused the results to be sinful, sin itself. That is the point of what we read in the seventh chapter of Romans. It is sin that causes the evil brought about through the misuse, if you will, of the law. It is sin that has taken the initiative and uses the commands of the law to work its evil in you and in me. It is sin that reversed the intent of the law and caused it to work death rather than life. We can no more condemn the law for the evil which flowed through it than we can condemn that puppet for any gestures it might make. If sin corrupted the law, does that make the law evil? Of course not. That is why Paul can conclude that the law and its commands are not evil. Instead, the law, the Torah, the first five books, 
are holy and just and good. But that doesn't solve the whole problem. We're left with a quandary nonetheless. If sin can corrupt God's holy given law, given through Moses, what chance does a poor mortal human have when it comes to avoiding the wages of sin? If God's law can't do it, how can you and I? You might ask, what can I do, Pastor, when the weight of sin hangs upon me all the day long? It corrupts me. It it corrupts my will. And it brings me closer to physical and spiritual death. What can I do, Pastor? Well, Paul, Paul works with this. He knows this very reality, along with all of us. And those sentiments are echoed in in this chapter 7's 24th verse that Jessica read for us. He says, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Body of death. It's a curious term, standing in juxtaposition with the body of Christ. It may be a coincidence. It may have been Paul's intent. We can't ask him. But we don't know why Paul inserted that term right here. It's a curious term. And it's curious because, you see, the ancient Etruscans had this horrible form of capital punishment. It would have been widely known in Paul's time. It existed existed for several hundred years before Paul and was carried out for several hundred years after his time. The punishment was predictably called the body of death. Now, I'll skip the gory details, the most gory details of how this worked. But for a person who had committed a most heinous murder, for example, this kind of punishment was used. And it worked this way. The murderer would be spread out, his arms straight out and his legs spread apart. And then the murderer would be bound with ropes around his arms and around his legs, but he would be bound to his victim arm to arm, leg to leg, face to face. They were to be tied together and there was no escape from that posture. None. The victim of the person's sin would be the last sight that the guilty person would see before their own death. That was the body of death. Whether Paul intended it, that meaning would have rung in the ears of his initial hearers. The body of death reminds us that we are far too weak to overcome the power of sin. Sin is in us, it's under us, it's around us. We are bound to it. There is no human means of escape. There remains only death in any future of our own making. It was purely coincidental that our sermon series on Romans, as it's progressed, came to the seventh chapter this day, on the day that's traditionally one when we consider the transfiguration of our Lord. And I assume Pastor Jerry wasn't draconian, and it was coincidental he assigned me this day too, and they all came together as, uh, as you see it. But transfiguration, as we consider that this day, is a term which describes the shining out of Jesus' true nature. And that happens as he speaks with the appearance of Moses and Elijah, too long gone from the earth's scene on that Mount of Transfiguration. 
Remember, Moses had been the giver of the law, the law of which Paul speaks. He'd been the giver of that, long, of that law long before Jesus' time. And Elijah. Elijah had been a prophet of miracles who had confronted sin's evil in, in outrageous ways by God's power. And yet that sin had infected all of Israel's northern kingdom in Elijah's time. So on that mountain of transfiguration, <clears throat> with God's glory shining in the person of Jesus Christ and reflected through the, the personal appearance of Moses and Elijah, these two ancient figures in that glow talked to Jesus about his departure. They talked to him about what Jesus was going to accomplish in Jerusalem when he came down from that mountain. They spoke about Jesus' death. That very important conversation certified the unity between Jesus' message and the law in the person of Moses. And it, it certified the unity of Jesus' message with all that had been recorded in the prophets of the Old Testament. It's also true that this encounter showed that Jesus' fate was not simply in the hands of the Jewish high priests or Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. All those things that were going to happen in the coming, what we now call Holy Week and Easter, all those things were discussed with Moses and Elijah and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration before Jesus got anywhere near Jerusalem. It was known in advance by God's emissaries. These two, in fact, were sent from heaven to be witnesses that Jesus is indeed God's beloved son, as we heard from that glowing cloud. Three days from now, we will gather for worship on Ash Wednesday. The 40 days of Lent will follow that day, and then we will come to this year's celebration of Holy Week and Easter. And Easter is, as it always is and always should be, a grand and glorious day. But we have to remember the entire message given through the witness of the last days of Jesus Christ's bodily life among us. And that began as he came down the mountain of transfiguration. And what we see in that record is that sin, sin, surrounded the man Jesus. We can imagine that he was something like a sin magnet. He was attracting that, that awful stuff from everyone those who were alive in his time, those who had lived long before him, and those who would come after you and me and our children. Everyone who looked at him during that fateful time as he entered Jerusalem after that Palm Sunday, everyone who looked to him after that event came to despise him. They spat upon him. They slapped him. They called for that other ugly form of, crucifix of uh, capital punishment, crucifixion. And as Jesus hung on the cross, and as they laid him in the tomb, he took on the appearance of the ultimate body of death. But then three days went by, and the tomb was found to be empty, and he lives, he lives even now. Remember that I said earlier that the problem with the law was that it was weak? It is. You and I have that same weakness problem. But when he rose, when he came out of the grave, he, we saw for the first time what strength looks like. Strength looks like the power to overcome sin. 
and sin's wages, death. He overcame every bit of sin, all time and all places. Back in Romans 7, Paul, in in verse 24, asked the question, Who will rescue me from this body of death? How can you forget that line? He answers his own question in the following verse that Jessica read for us, when he shouts out, Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how I'm rescued. The apostle then rounds a rhetorical corner as he turns away from the wages of sin and opens chapter 8 with another bold statement. He says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying to us across the millennia is this, sin is all around you and me and everybody else. It is indeed like the puppeteer's hands controlling your actions and, and even your will. You are, in fact, too weak to overcome sin by your own power. But thanks be to God, Jesus Christ is in no way too weak. He's already overcome those powers of sin, death, and the devil. And the body of death, that horrible image of the body of death, has been buried. And it was left behind forever when Jesus rose from the grave. It's in the pit that he exited. The power of the word of God has done all of this. And we will see that power work again in just a few minutes at 11 o'clock in the baptism of our newest brother in Christ, Graydon Hinkle. He will be baptized right here as he passes under the water and the power of sin and death is washed from him and he receives God's promise of life forever. That's what we'll see at 11 o'clock. But what do you and I do? What do we do now with our lives? Do we go out and then Sin lustfully, because sin doesn't matter, right? Jesus defeated it, so let's have a party. Do we go out and roll around on the ground with the serpent of sin? Of course not. You've heard the Apostle Paul in those preceding six chapters, and you've heard my preaching brothers from this pulpit inform us otherwise in these six weeks. Instead, our response is often repeated, but I'm afraid not sufficiently appreciated. Brothers and sisters, we go out from this place after receiving the power of Jesus' word, which frees us from that ancient body of death. And we go out, and instead worrying about that body of death, we actively build up the body of Christ. That's what we do. In other words, we love God, and we love our neighbor, whoever that neighbor may be. We go out, taking the peace of the Lord with us, And we put it to work, serving the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.